Good morning, everyone. My name is Kevin Lagore. I'm the product specialist for Skywatcher here in North America. And this is the Skywatcher What's Up webcast, where we take a look at all things astronomy from what's up in the nighttime sky to equipment to just tips on imaging and observing. And if you're new to the webcast, thanks for joining us. Um, if you like what you see, subscribe to the channel because it's going to keep you up to date with uh, all of our future content and what's coming out next. And um, if you are joining us again, thanks for everybody uh, who's joining us again. And uh, happy Friday. Um, if you are watching this after the fact, um, thanks for watching. Um, all the Skywatcher What's Up webcasts are recorded, so they are saved on the YouTube channel. So you can go back and check them out um, for any time that you want to feel like you want to watch it. So um, we do this every Friday, 10 a.m. Pacific, right here at the Skywatcher USA YouTube channel. Um, each day is different. We try to make each topic uh, unique. And of course, at the end of every month, we have a special guest speaker. And today we actually have a really good friend of ours. And if you haven't ever had the chance to use or image or even had the luxury of owning a stellar view telescope, I highly recommend checking them out at some point in your observing career. They're phenomenal instruments. But we actually have the president and owner with us today, Vic Maris, and we're gonna bring him on here uh, in just a second. So a big thanks for uh, Vic for joining us today. And um, we're going to bring him on. And Vic is actually uh, live from the Stellar View Optics shop today. So it's kind of cool um, having him here. So let me get Vic in here. Hey, Vic, how are you doing this morning? Hey, if it was any better, I could <laughs> stand it. So you're, you're actually at Stellar View. This is where you guys do... This is where a stellar view equipment and telescopes basically come to life. Yeah, this is our nursery. We like to call it the stellar view nursery. And uh, every so often, uh, you know, we'll, we'll produce scopes and every so often the scopes come back to the nursery. Somebody will drop it on their <laughs> driveway or something and they'll come back and we'll fix them. It doesn't matter if they're 22 years old or not, you know, we'll, we'll take care of them. But yeah, this is where the optics are hand-figured, actually, in our optical shop here. And it also is our testing facility where we have our Zygo phase-shifting laser interferometer. And we'll be looking at that um, near the end of the uh, program here uh, to show people how we go about testing optics uh, after we hand-figure them. Perfect. Well, you know, I, I know we all enjoy seeing stuff like that, so hopefully... Uh, we can take a look at that here a little bit later. Um, but I always like to ask, the first thing I like to ask if we ever have any um, uh, special guests on is how they got into astronomy because we all at some point um, fell down the rabbit hole and got involved in telescopes and yada, yada, yada. So um, yes. how did you get started in your career in astronomy just as an amateur astronomer? Yeah, I think my story is like everybody else's story, uh, like your story. It's just that mine happened probably a lot longer ago. Um, you know, I grew up during the space uh, age um, where we'd go outside and we, okay, the balloon is going over at a certain time. And that meant the satellite. That meant, first of all, Sputnik and then, of course, 
Telstar and all those satellites that were so amazing for us to see. Of course, now the sky is just cluttered with them. But that got me looking up. And I remember looking up at the stars. I grew up in the San Fernando Valley. So there were probably five or six stars out at night. I mean, it was light polluted. It's a suburb of LA. But I got, I, I just was intrigued. What are the stars? And I asked my parents for a telescope, as many people do. You know, we didn't have much money. And I remember my dad taking me to LA and we went to pawn shops and he, you know, tried to talk the guy down. I ended up with, uh, with a refractor, the quintessential 60 millimeter refractor. And it had a wobbly mount and horrible optics. And, and so I struggled with it for a long time, quite a, quite a, quite a long time. And I knew nothing. And I was in the seventh grade in my electronics class, um, somebody asked me, do you have a telescope? I said, yeah, yeah, it's not very good. He goes, well, you ought to make one. And I said, you can do that? And he, yeah, you can make telescopes. So I, um, he gave me, he brought that Edmund and A. Jager's catalog. And, and I, um, I started, uh, you know, saving up my allowance money. And the first thing I did was to build a four and a quarter inch reflector, like many people do using parts. Then I decided I'm going to do a mirror. So I I bought a six inch mirror kit and I polished the mirror and I was having some real trouble parabolizing it. And so I went down to cave optical company, which was in Santa Monica. And, you know, I wanted to ask some questions and I said, is, is Tom cave here? And no, he's not here. But the optician came out of the back room and he saw I had this mirror in my hand and he invited me in the back room. And for about an hour, he showed me how to do it, which I thought was incredibly kind of him you know, to, to spend that kind of time with this kid, you know. So then that mirror was made, and then I decided to build a refractor. And the, I could never get that refractor to color correct. I worked on it and worked on it probably for a couple of years. I walked around a barrel a long time, and I could never get this color out. I'm at Sky and Telescope, you know, however many years later. This was after I had started Stellar View. And I told the story, well, they asked me, when did, when did you make your first refractor? Back in the late 60s, but it wasn't very good. And one of the editors raised his hands and he said, did you get this lens kit from, and I said, yeah. And he goes, I did the same thing back then. They had the wrong glass. And it was like, here I am, I don't know, 40, 50 years later, finally realizing, you know, it wasn't me. And, uh, and, and that was kind of an amazing thing, because I would have gotten into refractors a lot sooner had I not encountered that difficulty of, of bad glass. And so, um, you know, I just kept making scopes. Uh, I made an 8-inch Newtonian, then an 8-inch classical Casgrain. And then I went off to work in parks, you know, for 30 years of my career. And, um, but, but all through that, astronomy continued to be my passion. We put telescopes in parks. We did the Robert Ferguson Observatory in Santa Rosa. And, uh, uh, you know, I ended up teaching at the Learning Exchange um, when I let the works in Sacramento. And the, the thing that was cool about that was that it was my students that I was teaching astronomy to that talked me into starting a telescope company. My first response when they said, you should make your own telescopes and sell them was, I'm not crazy, you know, I mean, why would anybody do that? And then I got to think about it more and more. And then, and then uh, 22 years ago, we started Stellar View, which is kind of cool. That's, 
quite a history, actually. I think, um, you know, it's... I think people forget how long it takes to actually get companies um, like this up and running and just the, the background it takes for someone like yourself to go from getting interested in astronomy to having enough love and passion for it to want to dive into this as a full-time career and putting your own, you know, blood, sweat, and tears and money into making it a thing. You know, that's the thing I think I hope customers understand is that we're all in this because of our passion. Um, a lot of customers will call and they'll ask me a question about some other company and they say, oh, um, we know you're all in competition and stuff and whatever. And I go, you know, actually, we're friends first uh, because we all share the same passion uh, of making telescopes uh, or doing whatever it is we do. You know, we're all we all love to look up at the night sky and and uh, and, and enjoy the universe. It's, I, I guess what happened to me, I mean, I'll never forget the first night I went out under a truly dark sky. You know, this is like, this is like two years down the road. My parents ended up visiting people who were in Yucca Valley, I think. And, you know, and it was a new moon. And I brought my little telescope with me. And I, I went outside and looked up and I was just, my mind was blown. You know, you talk about, you know, your uh, tagline, uh, be amazed I was amazed and you know I didn't know where to start and uh, it's that kind of inspiration that we have that you really can't put into words you know that the stars inspire me that type of thing but once it's got its hooks in you you know it, it can it can last a lifetime and you end up uh, being able to go out and do things like view a total eclipse of the sun uh, you know go into places that have a truly dark skies and uh, go down into the southern hemisphere and observe you know all of these things are like they're things that you remember throughout your life so for us it's a passion and that's why so many people you know like you kevin you you have a definite passion for uh for astronomy and it comes across and i think that's the thing i like about all of the vendors that i that i get to work with and get to know and talk at Neef with and, and such is that we're all just, we all just share this passion. And, um, you know, we're not in it for the money. You know, I'm, I'm fortunate in that I have a retirement income, so I can reinvest everything we make in equipment and stuff like that. So I've been able to become like a amateur scientist, you know, as we continue to develop this optical shop and, and to, uh, to produce better and better optics. And I think that's an important note that a lot of um, maybe our customer base doesn't get to see because it is on the it's on the back end. You don't get to see a lot of you know what goes on into it. But I know we get a lot of people who are you know we've had people who are like oh I I don't like this or I don't like that. Um, I'm going to vendor A or vendor B and whatever because I I understand that. We don't always fit what someone's looking for. And we've had people before where they're like, well, I'm going to go to Stellar View. It's like, all right, say hi to Vic. Um, like, you know, <laughs> we, this industry is really small and no one's, this is not a get rich quick uh, industry by any means. The people who are in it are here because they want to be here and because they love it. And yeah. You know, the running joke is, you know, how do you make a million dollars in the telescope industry? And let's start with three. So, um, but it's not, 
everybody I've talked to, you know, the money is obviously it's just it's just how the world works. We all have to understand that we have to make a living in order to do the things that we want to do. But everyone that I know and I'm friends with vendor wise in astronomy, when you talk to them, they they carry around the, the same seed that a lot of our customers do where we love astronomy for A, B, C reasons, and we just happen to have a career in this, but we all love it for the same reasons, all of our customers. I, you know, we go to a dark, like you said, a dark sky. I'm as inspired by a dark sky as a beginner is. It's just phenomenal. And we, I think deep down, we all share that same deep uh, passion for it and just because we sell telescopes or whatever has nothing to do with it um, and I don't feel like that really takes away from it it's just we have a different light on how telescopes come into reality but deep down it's still that you know that little kid who got their first telescope and is excited to explore this, the night sky is where I find most people are at and there's they're actually quite genuine in making you the best um astronomer you can be yeah yeah i mean and, and learning you know life is a learning experience you know you, you're going to be learning your entire life and uh you know my i had the opportunity to do one of my other passion which was to work in uh, california state parks for 30 years you know as a park ranger and a superintendent i at one time was the chief of interpretation and when I say interpretation, not of languages, but of, of the cultural and natural history. And so I got to build 40 different visitor centers. In fact, for the last three days, I was up in the North Coast where one of my visitor center projects uh, was up at uh, Van Dam State Park. And, uh, you know, so I got to actually be out in the woods and, and enjoy nature that way. But I always did star talks whenever I was there uh, with various telescopes that I made. And I think the thing that I really enjoyed the most was getting together with people, like you say, that were passionate. The people of uh, the, the Santa Rosa area, the Santa Rosa Astronomical Society, um, they, uh, they were having trouble. They wanted to build an observatory up at the geysers, and they wanted the building to be a cinder block that were, where they would fill the cinder block with solid concrete, and the county wouldn't allow it. And the reason they wanted that was people would come up there and they would shoot into the observatory and they didn't want their telescope destroyed. Well, I said, why don't you put the observatory in one of our parks? We have a park, Sugarloaf Ridge State Park, and it's got very low attendance. And but it's you know it's in the city, uh, and uh, but and they just jumped on it, and they got donations from wineries. They raised all this money to build this observatory for a 40 inch telescope that they actually made i mean polished everything a 40 inch very fast telescope and you know seeing that and 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 then realizing now decades later how many people uh learned what they learned all that they could uh, from that uh from that observatory the robert ferguson observatory and the fire that went through there recently almost took the observatory but the firefighters you know they they were they're, the firefighters in that area are very protective of their parks and they were able to stop the fire literally feet from the building which was awesome and of course we've had mount wilson now almost on fire and, and uh, the fires in california yeah. are, are, Ridiculous. are and it's not gonna t it's gonna take more than just raking folks i mean you know it's there's a 
there, there's a thing going on called uh, climate change. And so it's a problem. And uh, so, you know, uh, having the opportunity, and especially when we get through this pandemic, having the opportunity to go places again by air, you know, to, for astronomers to go to Australia or New Zealand to uh, see the southern sky and, uh, you know, to, to go and see eclipses and stuff. I mean, it's all there. And it's just like right now, everybody's suffering from the smoke coming from California. And I apologize. I'm sorry that those of you on the East Coast are, you know, are, are, getting, this, are getting our smoke. Uh, but um, the smoke will clear. And uh, I always, I often tell people that a visual astronomer, somebody like myself who really enjoys observing visually, like looking at Jupiter or whatever, is sort of like fishing. Sometimes the fish bite and sometimes they, they don't. And sometimes you don't catch anything. When you go outside to observe on a new moon night, sometimes it's horrible. The weather's bad, it's turbulent, but you know, you just be patient and you'll get those stunning nights of super seeing. And uh, you know, it just, it just takes a, a great yeah. deal of patience. And nothing takes more patience than trying to make 99 screw lenses, believe me. It takes us six months to get these optics perfected. And, you know, you talk about this being a small industry. It is a boutique little industry. And every, every company has its own niche and has an important role to play. I mean, Skywatcher makes a good telescope. And for people getting started, I mean, it's a good choice. Um, you know, the optics aren't produced the way we do them here. They're on a different level, but boy, if it wasn't for Skywatcher, uh, getting a lot of people good telescopes, we wouldn't have the customers we have, which are the customer that wants the, the very discriminating customer that wants the very highest drill optics, something that, you know, takes a long time and therefore costs a lot of money to, uh, to I know that's one of the big things that sets StellarView apart. And we, we've, I've had this conversation with customers before as well, where, um, I, we've had customers, especially on like our Esprit triplets, they're like, well, why don't you release the Strel uh, ratios on that? Well, we're a mass production company. We're, we are designed, our whole business model is to make tons of telescopes. And they're, they're designed and uh, figured to meet the, the standards. It, they're designed to meet or exceed the standards that a telescope should be. And we do have telescopes that are quite well figured but we understand that um it's just not our business model to where we're going to test every single unit and really i mean they're all tested they have to be tested before they ship but we're not going to take that that time to individually inspect it down to what you guys do and there's some people that might skewer me for saying that they're like what do you mean it's like well it's it's just a different crowd of people um and it takes you know we have a lot of people that ask us it's like well why don't i get an inspection certificate with every esprit triplet well the factory inspects and checks all the lenses um as they should but the amount of time money and effort it takes to like you guys do to go through every ounce of detail to pull that out it's really an art form but it takes a lot of time for you to like you said six months for you to get that one telescope out the door and that is uh that does take um some time to do so and it's just different levels of the industry um i don't think anybody's making yeah. 
uh, crappy telescopes at all uh, in the industry right now. You can get a lot of good stuff. It's just you have different levels of of places, and as you go, it's you just have different levels of uh, quality as you raise up um, in the in those levels. And but on the flip side of that, you do pay for that, um, so that's what you would expect on certain things. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, you know, I, and I'll go over this in the Zygo room a little bit to talk about uh, the process, but. Um, you know, it's a matter of what people can afford. If if Skywatcher did the work we do, they would charge the price we charge. And you know, the industry, uh, the, the the customers in the industry set set the set the price many times for for things what they can afford and that type of thing. Uh, I do really I do really think Skywatcher is a really good telescope uh, for the money. I, I, I really do. And people are always baiting me, wanting me to, you know, and they, and they love to try and bait me into the reflector versus refractor thing, you know, like they'll, they'll make some comment about, hey, reflectors are better. And I just smile because it's like everything has a purpose. You know, if you're going to look at Stefan's quintet, you're not going to use a four inch refractor. You know, you're going to use a big light bucket. And, uh, and we've got bigger telescopes coming. I mean, I could tell you, but then I'd have to kill you. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, but it's, you know, uh, uh, you know, particularly, you know, visual people that want a 22 inch knob or something. Boy, you're going to see things with that that our telescopes would never show you. You know, it's the same, the same kind of thing. Um, when you get up to a real high strill ratio, uh, we found it's above nine to eight. Um, it, it, it's very stunning. And it's very funny because I went back and looked and Roland Christian had, said basically the same thing like i don't know a decade or two before and uh and when we started producing uh 98 strill and we looked at the at, at the way it looked on the test bench there was a difference there is something really amazing about when you get up to that level and now our 102 and above our 99 strill minimum um, and then we did this before the pandemic and we were getting caught up because it was taking like you know, six months or so to get a lens from the beginning to the end. Now, let me clarify something. We're not taking this lens and spending six months on this lens. I mean, think about it. We'd only sell like one telescope every six months. We're producing sets of maybe 18 lenses. And we go through a process where we're, um, you know, when we get down to the final figuring to bring up the strill ratio, We'll be testing it on the Zygo. We'll, we're going to be marking where we need to uh, draw attention to it, you know, where we need to start rubbing, uh, what kind of tools we need to eliminate zones, that type of thing. And then we'll put it back in uh, into the machine or we'll hand figure it while we're testing the next one. And then once that is rubbed, once that lens is being worked on, we have to sit it down for um did i a just little bit you but you're back now so okay yeah something just interfered um so once we hand figure it or use it we have to have it sit for a day to cool down to get equalized before we go over and test it so it's a process where we're working on a lot of lenses at once but each that each lens if we start at its birth and we go to the very end, it's about six months. 
And so it's a, it's a unique thing. And our, our customer base is minuscule compared to yours, Kevin. I mean, you know, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a completely different situation. But many people that have come to Stellarview had owned a Skywatcher and, and, uh, in the past. And, um, you know, we, we talked to so many people at Neef who have various different types of telescopes. And um, a lot of people, I find, expect a little too much out of a telescope that costs a little too little, if that makes sense. I mean, they buy a $100 telescope and they want it to do everything. And that's just not possible. So I think what's cool about this industry is you've got, you've got your you know, stellar views and your uh, astrophysics and your TECs and you've got your, uh, then you've got your sky watchers and celestrons and you've got that whole large audience of people. And then of course you have the telescopes that you buy in the department store, which are horrible. <laughs> so, so, you know, you've got uh, really three different groups of people and uh, they may or may not graduate up to, um, to um, premier, the, the, the premier level, but you know, it's, it's, what pe it's whatever anybody wants. And right now, with the uh, with COVID, uh, it's amazing because people are at home dreaming about these telescopes they've always wanted to own, and our phones ringing off the hook. I've had to add four people to my staff. We're we're just trying to keep up, as I know you guys are, and uh, it's a it's a nice problem to have. But I remember my uh, my master optician. Uh, Alex said to me one day, he goes, we just can't keep up with this. I said, don't worry about it, Alex. At least we don't have a comment. <laughs> and of course, a week later, we had a comment with a Don't ever let Vic stuff. say anything so again. Is, uh, yeah, I, I just need to shut up. <laughs> so anyway, that was, uh, that's kind of, it's kind of an interesting thing. But, you know, I come in here, I'm, I'm usually here seven days a week. It's just a lot of fun, you know, to to do the work uh, and uh, it's just something I really enjoy. Fortunately, my wife is very understanding. Big, big quotes, bold, italicized, you know, very <laughs> right there. I, re I remember the, the cartoon about what you say when you bring home a, your next telescope, you know? And I think one of them was, uh, boy, honey, you, you have very pretty eyes or something like that. You know, it's, it's kind of a, kind of a, a, a process we go through, but I digress. <laughs> what was your um, next question? <laughs> so you're, you're in the shop right now. Would you care to like show us around what, what you can show us? Yeah, sure. Yeah. 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 Well, we'll we have certain things hidden because of uh, the fact that we do, we do commercial, some commercial lenses. We've done some space optics uh, objectives and we are, we are working on some NDAs uh, where we're uh, doing the work for Department of Defense. So we have those things covered up. Uh, but most of, our, most of our telescopes are astronomical telescopes. That's what we really specialize in. Um, so I think I will, well, I don't know if I can flip this around or not. I don't know if my arm's long enough. Anyway, so I've been sitting here at the, at the flow bench. So we have a HEPA flow bench here where we do all of our optical cleaning. Um, as we work our way around, we have our uh, grinding and polishing machines where we'll be doing uh, eight at a time there, uh, 10 with those two. Um, we have some of the area where we do a lot of our hand figuring. We have a 24 inch Nord here. 
we have a 36 inch Strasbaugh here, so we in 36 inch refractor, which chop, is chop. of course <laughs> not going to happen. <laughs> yeah, right. Currently, what we're working on here is uh, our our large field flatteners. Uh, these are the uh, cells for the, these giant field flatteners that blackening uh, one of these elements, so there won't be any reflections. Um, to get here, we of course have to design the cell. And I think we have my machinist here, master machinist, um, Tanner. And uh, this is Tanner and he's working on, can you show us the cell? It is. So, yeah, can go move it around. Have I got that centered okay? Yeah. Okay. So he's he's designed the cell, and then we we build the cells on our CNC machines. So it's all fun stuff, you know. And uh, Tanner does a great job of uh, machining and uh, designing for us with us. Thanks, Tanner. Um, okay. So note to self: I need a selfie stick. Or get one of those like DGI support arms and stuff like that. So. Yeah, yeah. I do have fairly long arms because I can't see unless I hold the book out that far. Top secret. Sorry, can't show you. Um, so this is the Zygo interferometer that we talk about, and we've completely changed how we how we use it. Uh, we used to use it horizontally. If you look at the Dennis the Chico video where Dennis uh, the Sky and Telescope came in and we gave a complete tour. The Zygo used to sit on the table here and it used to hit a large flat mirror and go up vertically. We've decided to change it this way and mount it vertically so that the lens is pointing skyward just as it would when it's observing. The six inch beam from the Zygo interferometer comes through our six inch objective it's a special cell. This is this looks like it's a lens cell, the normal way, but it's actually backwards because the front lens is at the top, and it goes down, hits the sphere, and the sphere brings the light back, just the way it came down and into the zygote for analyzation. And uh, this is the we were just testing this one this morning, and so this is the test. I'm trying to line this up. You know, it's funny. I don't have my reverse screen. How do I? Oh, wait a minute. Voila. So, so this is the test rig and this is a live view of, of the, uh, of the optic, you can see that um, the atmosphere going on, you can see how uh, the waves are churning and such. We like to test in the morning, particularly because the wind, uh, the uh, turbulence in this room is minimized. We do have fans that we use to minimize the, the um, turbulence, but this particular one tested out pretty good, 994. Um, as we look at the test report, we see a greatly amplified view of what the lens looks like. Uh, we see this spot is still there. That's the ding that somebody put into the 
uh, flat on the side over there. We are going to get a new flat pretty soon for that, just so that cosmetic thing is gone. 994 Strill, not too bad. Um, and this is just one of our, the, the next 152 to, uh, this one has been finished after six months of work or so, and we'll now be sending this off to the um, um, coder. Now you'll notice up here it says model 70T. Um, that is because Alex was working on a 70T right before this, and that has to be manually changed. But this in fact is the um, 152 that we're testing. I can put my finger in front of it and you can see it go across there. Um, so it's, uh, it's kind of a cool machine. Now, a lot of people say, um, gee, you bought the Zygo so you could give customer customers test reports. And that's not the reason. Um, the test report is the last thing we do. But what we do with the Zygo interferometer is we analyze each surface. And when the surfaces aren't right, we can map the, the issues and we can work on each one of them. So it's a machine that we use continuously through the hand figuring process. Um, it's not used just to get a number for you. It's used for us to get that number up higher and higher. And once we get that number to this level and, and we've done all the figuring, a lot of extensive hand figuring on two different surfaces in particular on this one, then, then we're done. And so the Zygo is not something that's just used for certification. It's something to, that we use to make it happen to get it that accurate, because you can't do that any other way than, than, uh, than with a, about half a million dollars worth of <laughs> test equipment. So anyway, I hope that explained. No, I, I think that's really cool. People get to see the, the background behind the scenes of what all that's done, because uh, especially when you start talking Strel, that can muddy the waters really quick because I feel like there's some emphasis on there's a lot of people that will run with Strel as the end all be all, but there's so much that goes into it for that. So. Yeah. And it's not, and Strel isn't the only number. It's very important to understand that you can have a high Strel and you can still have a spherical issue. So we, we, we shorthand it by saying it's 99 Strel, but our spherical error number is a fraction of, of a mass-produced optic. Our coma, our astigmatism number, very low. Um, we learned the hard way that you can't just go for a high strill ratio. You've got to have all those other numbers down very low so that you do get a good start test, you know, and so you don't have uh, trefoil. Trefoil is where the stars appear triangular. And that can happen if you have a pinched lens cell, but it can also happen if you have long range inhomogeneity in one of the glass surfaces. You can end up with trefoil. And a lot of telescopes out there have some of it. And uh, so the stars appear triangular. Um, we want to get rid of all that. And so using uh, high homogeneity glass is, is very important. It's expensive um, to buy glass that has high homogeneity. People are always saying, oh, is that FPL 53? That's all they ask. They, they think that's the important thing. No, there are a lot of other questions that need to be asked in terms of, you know, uh, whether or not this optic is um, a, uh, 
a superior optic. And the funny thing about it is uh, many people call them, they go, we don't want FCD 100, we want FPL 53. And I'll say, you do realize that the ABBA rating, the, the dispersion is identical on those two glasses. <laughs> and that as long as the homogeneity is good in the glass, you couldn't tell which is which, you know? I mean, so, you know, there's those kinds of things. We end up picking FPL 53 just because customers want it, even though there's really no difference. So there's a lot of that stuff that goes on um, in the industry, a lot of misinformation. And I think it's largely due to chat rooms where you have self-professed experts who are very good at reading catalogs and looking online at stores and reading stuff, but they really don't have any experience in producing optics. And so they haven't learned by trial and error, as most of us have. I mean, <laughs> Roland and Marge and I will talk at dinner after one of the one night at Neef, and we'll just we'll just talk about how much money we've <laughs> lost just because of bad glass. You know, it's uh, it, it it can be very 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 we've, expensive. We've had that happen before. So, you know, we've gotten patches that were not good and you basically have to eat it and yeah you eat um, it yeah we i learned the hard way i i used uh was it z nk7 but at any rate um i i got this glass and i i produced i think 25 lens sets you can imagine how long that took uh 160s they were all bad <laughs> after about a year and a half of work, I found out that they had trefoil, and then I was able to find that out, that it was caused by long range and homogeneity. And so you end up having some very expensive yeah. doorstops at this point. Well, yeah. then, so, I, yeah. Skywatcher doesn't announce what ED glass we're using anymore. We got some flack over that. But I know there's other companies that don't either. But I think it does hone in on, it's kind of a marketing thing where, oh, it's FPL, blah, blah, blah. But... You know, there's a lot of, as technology advances too, there's new glass that comes on the market that is either easier to work with, it's more affordable, but still produces what you want, or because they're constantly coming out with new things. Like, for example, FCD 100 is fairly new in, in the world, and that's kind of crawled up the tier to being one of those, you know, nice glasses that people want to look for. Um, but I, I think people get stuck in that, yeah, I mean, uh, the the experience I've had with FCD 100 has been okay. I mean, we've we made some of our 130s out of uh, FCD 100, and there was no difference between it and the FPL 53 if the glass was good. Again, all these are caveated on is if the glass is good. The 130 is interesting because you know for I don't know 18, 16, 18 years we've been making 130s, and we've made it out of all kinds of glass. We started with shot FK. 51 not fpl 51 fk 51 we started with that then we went to uh fpl 51 we made an ed and then uh we've we've made it out of russian ok4 where the lenses that we obtained from lcos and then we've used fpl 53 uh we did mostly fpl 53 and then we we've done some fcd 100 and uh you know they've all been They've all been very good. I think probably the the the, the ones with the the highest ABBA number, in other words, the lowest dispersion, are the ones that have the best contrast, generally speaking. But of course, a lot of that depends on how accurately it's polished. 
if you have an FPL 53 Apo triplet uh, and it uh, it has spherical air, and you're not going to have the con the contrast that you would with a mm. nine nine strip uh, optic. You just the, there, there's so many other factors that, are, that come into play. Um, but you know, to get back to your initial point, you're right. Strill number isn't everything. It, it, it's it's a combination of factors that that make a difference. By the way, we had a Skywatcher telescope sent to us, and we tested it, and it was nine six strill. So good job. You know, I mean, it it, it met the old Zeiss standard. Um, so you know, it's it's uh, it's interesting. I've tested uh, apochromatic optics that were sold as apochromatic by other companies that were as bad as 0.7. Now, so, the, just so people know, there's diffraction limit, which is one quarter wave, which most mass produced stuff is, that's about 0.9, I think, is where that starts to land, strel wise, I think. There's a lot of the, variable uh, in that, the, though. Uh, so. Yeah. Um, and basically, for people that still are confused about what strill means, I think a simple way to put it is, if it's a 9-0 strill, 90% of the light is going where it's supposed to. And if it's 9-9 strill, 99% of the light is going where it's supposed to. So, I mean, that's a real greatly simplified, but at least it gives a person some idea. Um, the reason I mentioned the one that was 0.7 strill is it keeps floating around and uh, people keep selling it. The first time I, I learned about it was when a customer got one of our big field flatteners and he goes, there's something wrong with your field flattener. Uh, you know, this field is horrible. It, it, you know, it's all distorted and whatever. And I said, well, that can't be, you know, uh, well, what's your scope? Well, it's a brand X. Okay. Uh, you know, uh, he says, well, I'm going to be going to nightfall, which is uh, an event in Anza Borrego desert um, uh, in the fall. And so I said, well, I'm going to be giving a, a talk there. So let me come on over and take a look, look at it, what you've got. So I came by and I said, now, have you star tested? And he goes, oh, I don't have any eyepieces. I'm just an imager. So I pulled out my Optimus eyepieces and <laughs> looked through it. I said, this is the worst star test I've ever seen. <laughs> I said, I think the problem is the telescope. And it wasn't a serialized telescope. And so what the guy did, we brought it back and I tested it. And sure enough, it was in the 0.7. And we have, we, we saved all of our data. And I explained to him what the problem was. He sold the telescope, bought one of ours, and he's, he was happy from then on. That telescope keeps appearing. People keep calling me and saying, I've got a brand X, blah, blah, blah. And your field flattener is not working. See, this is affecting yeah. my reputation. <laughs> and I had nothing to do with the telescope. So, you know, there, there are, there are some horrible telescopes out there um so it, it, it it's um, it's a problem it's a problem and i think you want to go with a company that has a good reputation like skywatcher you know where the optics are going to be made by master opticians that know what they're doing you know and uh there's a lot of like uh, i don't want to call them gray market but there's a lot of telescopes that companies can buy uh from china from mass-produced companies and they can be good and they can be mm. not so good. Uh, it varies quite a bit. And also, you know, shipping from China over to here can cause some issues. Um, sometimes telescopes are just knocked that's, out of alignment. line. That's why we check ours fixed. when they come in because stuff, yeah. we all have seen yeah. what shipping does to anything. 
So you have to be careful with that. Yeah. Um, we're coming down to the last 15 yes. minutes. And I know we have some questions I want to get to, so we've got some uh, buffer for them. Um, the first question, uh, we kind of covered that one already, so let's go to this one. Um, uh, there was one in here. Is it possible to order the 152 scope with OK4 or FCD100 glass? No. Um, uh, the, uh, the, every time you, you produce a new optics set, it, it's expensive. I tell people, a lot of people say, can you make me a blah, blah, blah? I go, you know, the problem is this, this will be a whatever, $5,000 telescope, um, you know, uh, if you buy the second one. But when you buy the first one, all the tooling, um, all the work that goes into developing it, the, the, um, uh, you know, the design, the buying the glass of a certain size, getting it curve generated, all that is expensive. And so uh, our uh, 152 is uh, made with FPL 53, a lanthanum in the front, um, and no, a BK7 in the front and lanthanum in the rear. And it's, a, it's the best design that we have found. Um, and that's the way we make it. Now, if you were to put FCD 100 in there, it would probably be pretty close. That that probably could be done, but we'd probably want to we'd want to tweak the design. I mean, we tweak the design just based on the data that comes from the glass mm -hmm. when it arrives. We do a little bit of adjustment um, each with each uh, delivery of glass from O'Hara. Awesome. So yeah, the the answer to that would be no. Um, next question, any plans, um, lost your, there we go, we're back now. Um, any plans of any additions to the eyepieces line? Yeah. There you go. Um, yeah. It, uh, it, yeah, yeah, we, we plan to do a few things. Um, and uh, we, we don't have those finalized yet, but we're going to be adding some, some new eyepieces. Um, probably add, uh, well, I don't want to say at this point, uh, there's, there's a few designs that we're looking Pretty at. Pretty cool. Um, other than the next question, other than design of metal parts, how much metal work is done in house? Oh, quite a bit. Um, we, we do, uh, we do our rings, uh, we do our cells, uh, we do, um, uh, we we get we either do the tubes on our lathe or we outsource the tubes. Carbon fiber tubes are always outsourced from China. Uh, American carbon fiber tubing is the same thing, and it's ten times more expensive. You know, it's like tennis shoes. If you want want tennis shoes, you got to buy them. They got to come from China. So we have some of that, you know, uh, as a, as a factor. We do outsource some of our uh, tubes to companies that are in China that do a good job on on tubes. Uh, so some of the scopes have our tubes and some of the scopes have outsourced tubes. Um, it, it really depends on, on the quality. We have to make sure the quality is going to be equal to our quality and, uh, and the price. Because we want to get our telescopes down in price as much as we can. Um, one of the things we did that was kind of revolutionary and scary was that we stopped selling our telescopes through dealers because we want to charge less money for our telescopes. And we had to do that in order to maintain costs. We were, we were at a, a break even point when we sold 
telescopes to dealers and by selling them direct only from stellar view we can actually pass that savings along a little bit and so we're going to be lowering some prices slightly or maintaining the prices the way they are um, even though some of the costs of uh, aluminum and, and glass mm -hmm. has gone up um next question what was it, is it i'm sorry is it good is it good when i, I ramble like this i think it's I mean, kind I, of fun just... to add adds dimension to it um Okay, all right. Uh, next question, can I send my SV102ED in for testing? Okay. No. We, yeah, we don't, we don't test telescopes that were not ED, uh, was an import. Um, and, you know, we visually tested them. We rejected all the ones that were, that were not good, but um, the downtime that that would take on the Zygo, uh, reconfiguring it for a 102 ED would take away from customers who are mm -hmm. have been waiting, you know, for six months. Especially as you mentioned so, earlier that you use but, them for you know, use the Zygo for figuring production. So yeah, well, it's used all day. Yeah, it's used all day. We'd have to take it out, you know, in at the end of the day. It's not used all the time. Like right now, nobody's here. Because uh, I don't, I, I don't want to have to wear my mask, even though it is a star mask. It's kind of cool, um, but uh, you know, everybody has decided to go to the other buildings right now and work while I do this. Because if these machines are running, you couldn't hear me. Um, yeah, we just we we have to really focus on our customers who you know are waiting for these scopes, and there's nothing worse than having to wait for a scope. Well, there's something worse than having to wait. It's the scope arrives and it's storming out. You know, you always have the new telescope curse. In fact, we used to put a spacer box in our telescopes and, and it was an empty box just to, to hold the thing in. And I'd write on it, clouds do not open. And, and the customer would email me and say, I, I accidentally opened <laughs> That's the box. awesome. It's raining. That was um, kind of fun. Yeah. Let's see, next question. Vic, how does the glass arrive at stellar view? Is it shaped as a lens or is it just flat? Uh, we, we order both discs and we order both curve generate, uh, we, we order, we order, okay, we order discs or we order curve generated discs. So they're, uh, they're already curve generated, but they still require, uh, mm -hmm. grinding and, and polishing. Um, it, it really depends on, on what scope we're talking about as to how we we do that um let's see i think i have one here this is how it came from o'hara this is our 140 i think looks small maybe it's the 130 It's probably the 130 that the 130. Uh, so it's it's already uh, this is a pressing, so it's curved on both sides, and then but we have to go in there and we have to usually um, you know make sure it's not wedged, uh, machine it, and then we 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 grind it and then we polish it. Uh, we start with 40 micron and we end up with uh, a very fine polish that we use special polish just for. The FPL 53, but that's how that that arrived, and we like to uh, we like to get the um, 
uh, pressings from O'Hara because they're, they've proven to be very good. Now, there's a size limit, and this is where you get into your thing about uh, glass types, um, Kevin. Uh, you know, there's a new glass from O'Hara called FPL 55, and it can be made larger because as you go larger and larger with these pressings, you have to do pressings over a certain size um, because the glass ingots are just not any bigger. So you have to press it. And so, uh, and O'Hara is very good at doing that and maintaining homogeneity because they anneal it very slowly. But um, the FPL 55 gives us the opportunity to go even bigger um, and still maintain the homogeneity. So uh, we'll probably be using that with our next telescope. Right. Um, next question. To what optical standards are your 9x50 deluxe finder scope figured? I have no idea. <laughs> The nine by 50 finder scopes, you know, sell for under $200 and they're made in China. They always have been, and they're very good. People really like them. Um, and I spec'd it out. I actually designed the finder scope with um, a uh, prism diagonal that had full multi-coatings. At the time, all of them had magnesium fluoride coatings, uh, not, not nearly as as a transmissive and then with the focuser and then with the eyepiece that we designed the way that it holds the uh, the uh, illuminator and I, I patented the whole thing and uh, because I because at that point Stellar you had two employees me and somebody else um, I let the patent run past the time limit um, so uh, you, you see that same design used elsewhere prior to that it was just you know a diagonal stuck in, no focusing ability, and you had to focus the front lens. But it was, I worked with a company in China to produce those because making them in the U.S. would, they'd be about $450, and nobody's going to spend that for a, for a, uh, you know, um, for a finder scope. So, uh, so we've never zygo tested. It's kind of an interesting idea, though. Maybe after hours, I want a I, picture I of the 50 on the zygo. Yeah, um, next question. If the cost slash distribution was not an issue, what will be the spec of your ultimate scope for you? If cost was no issue, what would be the spec of the ultimate That's, scope for yeah. me? Any one of any one of our 102 and above, 99 Skrill. I mean, you, you just can't get any better than that. And there is there is I am really particular i mean i'm retentive i mean it's just it's not healthy <laughs> and i you know i i need to have that level of optical quality so it would be any one of our scopes you know the interesting thing about the 140 is that we're just starting to get the first of those out now and each one of those will be 99 strill it will be the one telescope in our line where every one of them is 99 strill so uh, that would be the ultimate mm -hmm. i think for me uh, and I'll be getting, I'll be getting that. I, I keep, you know, getting a telescope and then somebody wants to buy a scope and we're out of them and I'll say, well, I could sell you mine. And then, you know, so I currently don't have a scope right now. Um, I really like to get a 152. Oh, up on that. <laughs> we get um, yeah. The old Stellar View planetary EPs are excellent. I use the 2.9, 4.9 and 6.1 on my SV70 Raptor. For the double shadow transit on Jupiter, are you going to make more or something else planetary? 
I like those eyepieces too. Um, they didn't sell very well. Um, those were produced by a company in Taiwan and we still have those, um, some of those. And, and so that's one of the things I want to look at our long eye relief eyepieces next. And that's, that's on our list. We just mm -hmm. got a huge list. I know how that that's is. Our, that's our problem. Yeah. I mean, there's 10 of us here. This yeah, is not a huge company. So most no. of the companies are rather small when you start to see how it is. Yeah. Um, this is a good one and I know you'll be able to nail it. Um, carbon fiber or steel? <laughs> steel. Um, was the person I guess so or I guess or so when you're making a tube out of a refractor is it carbon fiber steel or you know aluminum um... uh, refractors um, over a certain size um, carbon fiber uh, let me back up Let's start with aluminum aluminum is the perfect medium to make a telescope tube with um, it cools down rapidly. Um, it, it acts as a heat sink to the cell, so it really cools everything down quickly, and it equalizes you know, right away. It's, um, it's not insulating. Uh, a big carbon fiber tube, um, and I mean big, like a six inch or so, can retain heat. Um, also, some of the composites, like some of the plastic tubes that are made, um, really retain heat. I've had a number of customers ask if I can make an aluminum tube for them. And of course, we can't do one-offs, so we can't um, do that. So aluminum tubing is, is, is very good. Carbon fiber is lighter. Now, when you're in smaller sizes like our four inch and probably even a five inch um, carbon fiber and aluminum, there's very little difference. But when you get these big tubes and you get that atmosphere that's warm inside, that can be a problem. I tested carbon fiber versus aluminum with uh, 130s, um, I don't know, 12, 13 years ago, and the aluminum cooled down much faster. But that carbon fiber tube was velvet lined. So I think I was kind of, uh, you know, um, contributing to the problem of holding in the heat. So um, our 102s, when we made those, we just paint the insides of the tube. Actually, we have them paint them. They're, those tubes are made in China. And um, they, uh, they cool down rapidly. I've never had anybody complain about cool down. I don't think I'd make a 152 with a carbon fiber tube. I'd probably go up to the 140. I'd want to do some testing first. That's, yeah, so that's I'm always been a big, big topic that's come up for us too is our oh another thing I, I need to mention about that that's kind of important is that you know people say i want carbon fiber because it won't it won't shrink like aluminum does when it gets cold what they forget about is that the focal length of the lens reduces when the lens cools down so actually you know in a way aluminum is better for keeping focus depending on the size of the lens the f ratio the, the aluminum that's used and, and all that kind of stuff. But using a tube that does not contract, you're forgetting that the lens focal mm -hmm. length contracts when it gets colder. So yes. there's that. Too. Get a motor focuser. Um, yeah, you, you need a sensing uh, focuser. You know, I mean, Optech, uh, uh, FeatherTouch, I mean, a lot of companies make uh, uh, motorized focusers with sensors that you know you have to dial them in but once you do the mm -hmm. problem's done you know you, you've got that um, 
Last question, and then we'll wrap up for today. Uh, the cost for fractors across the board has gone up quite a bit over the past five years. In your opinion, what is the driving, what is driving the big cost increase? Is, has it increased? Glass usually goes oh. up. Well, glass is going up. I mean, I'm every year when I order O'Hara, I'm shocked <laughs> by, the, by the cost increase. Boy, I should have bought 200 sets back then and not, you know, 100 uh, or whatever. So glass is a very, you know, because the rare earth materials go up in cost and stuff. So O'Hara really, you can see why they're charging more. Metals costs uh, are going up. Uh, think about shipping too. I mean, when you're shipping cross country, uh, UPS and FedEx has gone way up with COVID and everything else. So yeah, costs are generally, I think, rising everywhere um, on everything. But uh, I think we've, I think that, uh, you know, if you compare, yeah, I guess what I'm doing is I'm thinking way back, like 20, 30 years ago, the costs of, of, uh, of an eight inch, you know, like, you know, your eight inch reflector is a fraction of what it was way back then. If you were to buy a, a cave and then uh, and then uh, consider how you know inflation works, um, so I don't know. What do you think? I, I pretty much nailed a lot of that. It's just the raw materials are what's going up, and of course you still have to make the margins to keep your business afloat. So that that effect, and there's different ways you can. It's, it's helpful. Just yeah. So it's, it's just how how that. That's just how the world works. You know what. You know what I'm amazed about is how, like I had this one guy that would came by Neve every year complaining, really upset, really angry at how he never could get a good telescope. And he kept coming to the Celery booth and, and it was always because he bought the cheapest version of whatever was out there. And he always complained about it. And I go, you know, maybe you, you have to realize that, you know, putting more time into it, cost, it'll cost more money. But for like three years in a row, third year, I said to the guy, stop coming to my booth. <laughs> you're not taking my advice. But, you know, think about what your time is worth, you know, and, uh, and, and, and think about what you want to do with this thing, you know, with this telescope. Do you want to take fantastic images? You better have a, a fairly good camera and you better have a fairly good telescope if you're going to do that. If you want to look at things visually, you better have mm -hmm. accurate optics, you know. Otherwise, you're going to be unhappy. And so... Uh, you know, there's there's that to think about. Um, the so. final question, because we just have to bring it up, is how's Jan? <laughs> you know, we took three days off together, um, and uh, Jan's doing incredibly well. Uh, the vice president of this country of this company is still um, maintaining control from a distance. She doesn't. She doesn't work here, but she does my logistics for me, and we take a, a walk every morning, and we uh, talk about business and stuff. Jan's amazing. She's if an amazing. You guys woman. haven't had a chance to and, meet, uh, you know, ex-wife Jan. Next time you're at Knee for at an event, stop by and say hi if she's there. She's amazing. Yeah, I'm a lucky. Someone guy. has to put up with you. <laughs> God, you know, I, you're telling me. Um. Well, that's pretty much it for today. So thank you very much for taking the time out of your um, day and week. And I know you guys are busy doing what you do over there. Um, but I really appreciate you sitting down yeah. for an hour yeah. with, with me. Um, if you guys are interested in Stellar View uh, telescopes, it's www.stellarview.com, correct? 
Correct. And, and VUE is V-U-E. Yes. So it's S-E-L-L-A-R-V-U-E. The B-I-E-W website was taken when I started the company 22 years ago. So it's, that's how we spell it. And uh, yeah, give us a call. Isaac would love to talk to you all about yeah, we'll, uh We'll put the link down in the uh, sub, uh, description below if you're watching this later. Um, so that's pretty much it. This is Vic from Stellarview. Thank you all for joining us. Have a safe weekend. Um, go out and view with your telescope. Whatever telescope you've got, just go out and observe the night sky. It's awesome and it's enjoyable, whether it's you know just getting started or if you got a big fancy refractor or daub, just go out there and enjoy the nighttime sky. Um, so yeah, thanks, thanks, Vic. Uh, have a good weekend, and uh, we'll All catch right. up with you guys later. All right, clear skies, everybody. All right, bye. Just a second. Yeah, hold on just a second.